Well, Austin, I want you to tell everybody who you are again because it's been, you know, one episode ago. I forgot. <laughs> uh, my name is Austin Bjorman. Uh, I am a husband, a father. Um, I'm a local educator uh, right outside of New Orleans at a charter school. Um, and I'm a member of St. Rose Community Church. Um, very interested in the pro-life cause. Uh, argued for it um, and so in, in various mediums. And so I'm very happy to be here and happy to discuss the issues. Yeah, man. Well, lay it out for us. All right. Um, the pro-life position is actually rather simple. Um, it is the idea that all human beings have objective value, worth, and dignity. And so the question uh, as it relates to abortion is, is what's in the womb a human being? And of course, the position uh, that we hold is that, yes, the fetus or the unborn child is a full-fledged member of the human family. And as a result, they have objective value, worth, and dignity and ought to be protected with the full measure of the law. Um, I like to quote Nancy Piercy here. She says the pro-choice position is exclusive. It says that some people don't measure up, don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the rights of personhood. By contrast, the pro-life position is inclusive. If you're a member of the human race, you're in. You have the dignity and status of a full member of the moral community. And so the pro-life position is simply that. If you're a human being, you've met the standard, you ought to be protected, you have objective value, worth, and dignity. And then abortion, of course, is the intentional killing of a human being, and therefore it's it's immoral and it's wrong. All right, man. Well, I guess the, the main question I always see when, when we're talking about this kind of stuff is, uh, when does that value start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the pro-life position is, you're a human being uh, from the very beginning. And so the question of when life begins, I think, was, you know, controversial back in the day. I mean, you, you think about Roe v. Wade, the premise of that bit of litigation is that we don't know what it is. Uh, embryology had not really come of age by that point. And so it was built upon this premise of agnosticism. But it is not 1973 any longer. I mean, the science of embryology has shown definitively that what's in the womb is a human being and you're just a human being at a different stage. And so the question of when life begins, I mean, the answer is, is pretty clear scientifically. It's at fertilization. I mean, at fertilization, an individual's DNA is determined at that moment. Your sex, your blood type, your hair color, and a host of other qualities are present at, at that stage. Um, you're obviously alive. You exhibit irritability, metabolism. Uh, there's cellular reproduction. Um, you're whole. And so you will continue that process of developing with proper gestation and proper nutrients from the umbilical cord. And then you're obviously a human being because human beings uh, bring about <laughs> other human beings. There's no debate about whether or not a human is going to produce something other than a human. And so life begins at conception, at fertilization. You're a distinct, whole, live human being. And there's no moral difference between what you are in the womb and what you are outside of it that justifies elective abortion. I mean, you're going to have to play devil's advocate a little bit and tell me, like, what do yeah. you think is the, the best arguments against being pro-life? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that the—I'll I'll go ahead and say this. I think most people just repeat cliches and slogans they've heard. Um, that seems to be the case. You're not having a lot of deep moral reflection on the issue of abortion uh, across the board. I think most people are just repeating things that they've heard. 
Um, outside of that, though, in in my opinion, the three strongest arguments for the pro-abortion side um, relate to bodily autonomy, you know, my body, my choice, and then another form of a bodily autonomy argument, uh, which is the right to refuse service argument. And then, of course, the issue of rape and incest. Um, those three, to me, seem to be the most salient um, arguments that people use against the pro-life position. I've heard of the the first and the last one, but I don't actually know what the, I don't think I've ever heard the second one. What is that one? Yeah. And so the second one, the right to refuse autonomy argument, it's, it's connected to the, my body, my choice position. Um, You see it in like scholarly circles. um, But it's this idea that um, a, a woman has the right to refuse a service to the unborn child. That's a part of her bodily autonomy, uh, bodily integrity. And the, the famous example of this is given by Judith Jarvis Thompson um, with a violinist. And so, I mean, she sets up the scenario, you know, you wake up in the morning and you find yourself um, waking back up with an unconscious violinist connecting to you. Famous unconscious violinist. Um, he has a failing kidney ailment and the Society of Music Lovers. They canvassed uh, the local area. They looked at your medical records and found out, wow, you're a perfect match. And so while you were asleep, they hooked you up to that famous violinist. And so your life is what's keeping the violinist alive. And so in that moment, the question becomes, are you morally obligated to continue keeping that violinist uh, alive? with your bodily resources. And of course, uh, Thompson is making the point, well, no, of course you're not. Um, You know, it may be nice of you. It may be, I mean, (laughs) courageous of you, but you're not morally obligated to actually keep the violinist connected to your bodily and have to your body and have access to your resources. In the same way, you know, of course, this is about abortion. In the same way, Um, It is a woman's right and her prerogative to actually refuse service to the unborn, because, again, no one has the right to your bodily resources, even if it means that person uh, will not remain alive. And so you don't often hear this argument at a street level, but I think this is the most salient philosophical argument at a scholarly level against the pro-life position. Um, I don't think it's without responses, though. I think that there's some really, really good responses um, to this right to refuse uh, argument. Yeah, that one was it. I've never I think I've heard bits and pieces of that one, but I didn't realize I guess I've never really like it's not the the main argument. I hear rape incest and then uh, um, the body bodily autonomy one the most. That's usually the go to that I usually see in this discussion and on Facebook, on social media. Those are the ones that are drawn out the most. All right, so I guess we'll just go step by step. I just want to kind of, how would you uh, set up a rebuttal for each one of those? Like, what, what, would, be, what would your process be when talking to somebody that uh, maybe uses one of these points? Yeah, and so related to that right to refuse argument, um, and I have actually seen it recently. I've seen it on Facebook, which is surprising. Um, I think that there's a lot of very important points that that just just swamp and destroy this argument. And the first point is, I mean, an analogy is only as strong as the two things being um, compared. And so, you know, the relationship between a mother and child 
is so dissimilar to the relationship between the person and the violinist that the uh, comparison is almost invalid. Um, I mean, it would almost be better if in the analogy, if a mother woke up to find herself surgically connected to her own child. Um, and at that point, what kind of mother would willingly cut the life support system to her two-year-old often situation? And so the relationship between a mother and a child is of a different caliber and so dissimilar um, that it almost threatens the whole analogy at, it, at, at its basis. And then secondly, I mean, in the analogy, the child is not an intruder breaking in. It's not a violinist being hooked up to a body. It's not a, a parasite. The child is exactly where he or she belongs. And so, and, I mean, it's, <laughs> if, if the child does not belong in its mother's womb, where else in the world could it possibly belong? And so unlike the intrusive violinist, the child is a human being completely dependent on the mother at that stage of development. And that's the natural place where the child ought to be. And then there's, there's a sleight of hand that's taking place in this analogy. Again, it's so dissimilar to the issue of abortion. And so, you know, in the violinist analogy, you, you know, you, you take the IV out, you take the tubes out, and then you walk out of the room, you, you've refused your services to the violinist, and of course the violinist will likely pass away. Um, in abortion, it, it, it's not quite that type of process. Um, it is the killing of a child through poisoning, dismemberment, crushing, or some other heinous method. Um, so it's actually more gruesome than withholding support. If the analogy between the abortion and the musician was truly accurate, after the person unhooked the violinist, they and the Society of Music Lovers would then begin hacking him to pieces or slipping him poison or sticking medical instruments through his body. Again, that, that's a more accurate picture of what's happening um, in an abortion. And, and again, there's also the issue of agency here. I mean, the violinist is being hooked up to you apart from your, your will, whereas in most pregnancies, you know, they're, they're not the product of rape and they're the product of choice. And so, again, that's another major dissimilarity. And again, the whole implicit assumption made about this is that, <laughs> I mean, you're stuck in bed with a violinist for nine months. You're in a virtual prison. But that is not the nature of pregnancy for most women. Um, being pregnant does not mean you're stuck in a prison for nine months, you know, in bed, even though that can happen from time to time. Um, and then the last thing I would say about it is, I mean, if you granted the premise of the right to refuse argument, I think this could lead to some other ghastly ends. I mean, why not apply this to a toddler that's completely dependent on its mother's breast milk for life? I mean, can a mother refuse the milk because her baby doesn't have a right to those resources? I mean, what about at the end of life with needy parents who are elderly and in great <laughs> need of your resources? Are you able just to take them out to the woods and walk away? I mean, and let exhaustion and deprivation take their toll. And so, I mean, we have obligations to our children. We have obligations to our children, even when they're in the womb. And so those are some things I think that are that are that that sort of just take down the right to refuse bodily argument. Um, at first, it, it seems very salient. It seems almost <laughs> um, informidable, but it's not. I think it has some crucial uh, problems with that pro-life people have pointed out, uh, Tom. Okay, so what about the um, 
let's just talk about the let's move on to the rape and incest then like how would you address that with yeah. somebody that maybe have has have yeah. went through with uh with being raped or with the the incest issue yeah and i and i want to say on the front end um this is probably the most difficult conversation to have um I mean, rape is an egregious evil and an assault on someone's fundamental dignity and worth as a person. Um, you do not have the right to force yourself upon another. And so I say that to say nobody is pro-rape. Uh, the pro-life position is rape is always evil. It's a moral evil that's worthy of full prosecution. And even if human courts fail, um, a lot of pro-life would people, a lot of pro-life people would say divine, the, the divine court never fails. And so I want to say that. The second thing I'd like to say is this accounts for maybe less than 3% of abortions annually. And so um, if the pro-choice position is simply what about rape um, and the others are not permitted, I could almost uh, understand and appreciate the weight of that. I don't think most pro-choice people are there. I think rape is almost the rape case is almost used utilized as a bludgeon uh, against the pro-life position. Um, the third thing I would say is how the child came about doesn't change the child. It doesn't change the nature of what's in the womb. Um, the baby's innocent. I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. It's still a distinct, whole, living human being who deserves the right to life. I mean, the circumstances of the conception do not change the nature of the child. Um, and, and at another level, and I say this with, with great, with the awareness that I have friends and I've had family members who have been affected by the evil of rape, abortion will not take the pain of the rape away. I think, in fact, abortion can add a new layer of pain into the mix. Um, abortion is likely not the best medical care for that type of victim. They should be given the best um, support, social services, therapy, counseling uh, that's available for them. I mean, and, and, and here's really the where the rubber meets the road. What do we do? with people whose physical appearance or physical existence calls us a high amount of emotional distress. Are we ever justified with violence? Are we ever justified, you know, in murder and homicide? And, and the, the way I've thought about this is, um, I'll give a personal story here. When I was growing up, my father died when I was very young. I had a neighbor. Um, Mr. George, and he wasn't like a father figure, but he was a man in my life that I could go and hang out with. He was really into technology, so he taught my brother and I so much. And he was he was larger than life. But one area where his his failures were very apparent was he was a a a belligerent racist. I mean, I heard word from him time about African-Americans that are just absolutely godly. And so, and it was so out of here because he was, he was such a, a decent moral person, but whenever there was something to be brought up about African-Americans, like it was like he was, he, he, he just couldn't control himself. And so finally I asked my mother one day, like, 
what's going on? You know, why, why is he so like that? And my mom shared a bit of, a bit of his story when he was younger, his only sibling, his sister was murdered um, by, you know, various men, uh, a few African-American men. And my mother said, maybe he feels that way because of what he went through. And now, as I've reflected on that years later, the question then becomes, did my neighbor have a right to his anger? Did he have a right to his racism? Um, I understand that the, the appearance of African-American people caused a deep emotional sense of distress. At the same time, he's still not justified in racism. He's still not justified uh, in that hatred. And so, I mean, we ought to give other types of care for people who's, who's you know, who experience such deep distress and duress, um, but it can't include the right to murder someone else. Um, and so we, at this point, you, you call women to courage, maybe carry the child, give him or her up for adoption. I mean... It's just a tough situation overall. Um, the last thing I would say is laws should not be should not be based on hard cases. I think hard cases make bad laws. Um, and again, this situation accounts for maybe three percent of all all um, elective abortions that are had. And so those are those are some things I would say about the issue of rape and incest. Again, not a not an easy situation at all. Um, I have, in my experience, with linking arms with other pro-life people. Pro-life people have been some of the most compassionate people in this in this area, and many of them have been victims of that egregious evil themselves. And so at the same time, you know, they, they doesn't change their position on what the nature of the person is in the womb. And so those are those are some things I'd say, Jonathan. All right. So I guess I'm gonna start bringing I got three points that I know that I've been I've been asked or I've heard in, in this discussion. Yeah. So I'm just wanna uh, see what you think. Or the last podcast we did, this is what got brought up whenever I asked them, like, what, what, why, when do you think the, the child, like, about value and stuff like that. So um, one of the guys that I had on last time, he said that uh, he thinks that the child does not become a human or it has no value until it has completely exited the womb of its mother. Uh, so... How would you? So obviously, you believe it's at conception. That's whenever life starts. Uh, but how do you have discussed that with somebody that believes that it is uh, fully the mother's choice? Like, as long as it is dwelling within the mother, it has no right to, um, and no rights of its own. So, like, how do you go about discussing that with somebody? Do you think there's like agreements you have to have when you get into the discussions before before it even starts, or is this, or is this one yeah. of those conversations you would just end with what you say? You would say what you say, and then you'd be done. Yeah. Um. I would want to point out that that we do have legal. Let me think how to word this. There are legal implications of harming a child in the womb, and so you know if a pregnant woman is walking in the aisles of Target and someone runs up and punches her in the stomach, and this causes great physical harm to the child in the womb, that man is going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And I mean, it's just showing some of the moral duplicity in our legal system, because that same mother could walk out of Target, go to a you know a Planned Parenthood, and then abort it with no legal ramifications. But I, I'd, I'd say that there there are legal aspects 
in our law code that say, well, there are protections for what's in the womb um, at a certain point. But I, I would want to question the idea, your environment does not determine whether or not you're a person. And so that seven to eight inch birth canal does not fundamentally change the nature of what's in the womb compared to what's outside of it. I mean, where you are does not determine what you are. When you roll over in bed at night, you don't stop being you. You're not a different person just because you're on a different, you're in a different location. You know, when you, when you walk into a building, you don't all, you know, become more valuable depending on what building it is. And so, you know, what's the difference between being in the womb and passing eight inches outside of it? Um, I would argue that there's no salient difference. And I, and I want to point out one thing as well. Um, if you're reading the scholarly literature on the abortion debate, virtually nobody is arguing that what's in the womb is not a human being. Just about everybody knows and agrees that what's in the womb is a human being. The distinction that's being made is a metaphysical distinction. Um, everybody grants it's a, it's a human being, but the debate today is whether or not that human being is a person. And so if it's not a person, it doesn't have legal rights, and therefore it can be exterminated. And so, I mean, everybody knows it's a human being. But the issue is this metaphysical debate about, well, is that human being a person? And at that point, I would say we have a long history in this country of denying personhood rights to people. And I'm uncomfortable with saying this group uh, gets personhood and this group over here doesn't. And I don't care whether it's race, gender, religion, sexuality, uh, degree of dependency, size. Um, I don't care if you're Native American, African-American. I don't care if you're disabled and you have exceptionalities. If you're a human being, you're enough and you're a person. All right. Well, that was, yeah. Uh, the next one I hear is why would, so the person that they don't have the abortion, they have the yep. child and then they give up the child and the child is in a state of perpetual grief and pain because they are put through the adoption process or put into foster homes. And then uh, another part of that is the homelessness that comes with it. That's another argument I hear. Like, why would you want to uh, force somebody to have a baby that they're going to give up and put them in and put that child in those situations, like for homelessness or for uh, to be stuck in a system that's uh, what I've heard is called corrupt. So how would you address that? Yeah. Um, and I, my, my wife and I worked for two years in a children's home. I have interacted a lot with DCFS and CPS because of that. I mean, I've had to call Child Protective Services even in my job and role as a teacher. And so I have direct knowledge with the social services, and I can readily admit that the foster care system in our country is not where it should be. I mean, I think in terms of government funding, that should be the one area where every American says throw as much money and time and resources as possible because what happens there matters. I mean, it matters even at a country level because you need good, informed, whole, traumaless citizens to have a well-rounded nation. And so the first thing I would say is everybody recognizes there are deep fractures in the foster care system. At the same time, having direct knowledge with the foster care system, um, it is not as bad as the premise of that argument makes it out to be. Um, I mean, there are wonderful people working in that sector of society. 
and I think they would quibble very strongly with the idea that basically foster, the foster care system is a literal hell. But more importantly, we don't determine the value of life based upon the quality of life. Um, I mean, goodness, if we did, we'd be killing all the homeless and handicapped people. I mean, why would we? I mean, if we determined the value of life based upon the quality of somebody's life, why are we not as a nation blowing up third world countries? And, and moreover, how does somebody know that the future life that a child will live is not worth living and that it will be full of nothing more than difficulty, pain and suffering? I mean, I think that's nothing more than, you know, an obtuse pessimism. And then, of course, you know, and I think the person making this argument would agree, some of the best things in life are the difficult things. And what appears like an unfathomable hardship to one may be a blessing in disguise for another, and it may be a blessing in disguise for that person later down the road. The difficult things that we go to have a direct link in forming who we are and, and, and enabling us to serve and help other people in similar situations. And the last thing I would say is, you know, maybe the mother doesn't want the child, but she doesn't speak for the rest of humanity. Um, there are no unwanted children. There are people that are ready to adopt any child um, at a moment's whim. My first child, we adopted her. We got a phone call that there was a homeless woman with two children in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And this lady made the most courageous decision that she could think of. She decided, I cannot provide for my child but I know someone else can. And we were connected with her. We met with her. It was a wonderful meeting. And, and even in that lunch, she said, okay, I think y'all are the ones. And she gave us the greatest gift that my wife and I could have ever been given, which is the ability to have a child of our own, even, um, even if we couldn't at that point. And so, I mean, we wanted that child and there are no unwanted children. There are people out there ready at a moment's whim to step in and take it and even provide the resources. Um, I'll just say personally, at the, at the end of that process, I can understand why abortion is, the abortion rates are as high as they are. I mean, an abortion is anywhere from 200 to, you know, $850. An adoption, or at least our adoption, ran close to twenty to $22,000. And so had it not been for the school I worked at, friends I had, family members, and my community of faith, there's no way we would have been able to afford it. Um, but we so believe that that child's life is worth living, just like her birth, birth mother thought that we were willing to put time and our financial resources to make that happen. And so, um, yeah, those are the types of things I would say uh, to those that would point to the foster care system being so poor. All right, so the last point that I heard more recently was a biblical argument, so I want to see what you say. Um, so the story of Bathsheba, and I'm sure you know where this is going, Bathsheba and David and, uh, you know, the, the child being fathered by David, um, and then God took away the child from David because of his sin. Uh, and if we're supposed to be stewards over the thing, God's creation, then why, and God is allowed to do that, why wouldn't we be? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to respond at this point because I, I want to note everything I've said for the pro-life position has been a philosophical, an ethical and a scientific argument. So often pro-life people are accused of bringing their religion into the public square 
you know, as if that's the worst thing you can do. But the pro-life position is not mainly a religious position, even though religion is obviously involved. It is a moral issue. It is a scientific issue. It is an ethical, you know, philosophical issue. And so I, there's a little hesitancy in me to respond. But since you asked, I'll respond. Um, God has the right to take any and all human lives because he is the sovereign creator of all human life. And so, I mean, it's not even apples and oranges. It's, I mean, it's the difference between an apple and the Milky Way galaxy, because obviously as the creator and supreme preeminent sovereign creator and sustainer of reality, he can take whatever life he wants to take. In fact, I, moreover, I would argue every life that comes into the world and every life that leaves the world is under his meticulous and exhaustive sovereignty. And so it's not like he's up in, in heaven being like, oh, no, he's slipping away. He's actively sovereign over all life. And so the reason why he's allowed to do that and we aren't is that we are creatures uh, and he is the creator. We are finite and he is infinite. We are completely dependent upon him for our existence. And he is completely and utterly sufficient in and of himself, needing no one and no thing for his existence. And so I don't have a, an, an issue with him taking David and Bathsheba's child and bringing that child to himself in the bliss of heaven any more than I have an issue with him taking any and all life as he so does. And so that's how I respond to that. I, I would uh, like to respond to the my body, my choice argument, the sovereign zone autonomy argument. I mean, that one's probably. Yes, yes. that's what yeah, 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 oh, yeah. definitely want to cover that. Yeah. And so that the my body, my choice argument and a, and a woman has the right to do with her body, whatever she pleases. I think that is the absolute most common argument or slogan or cliche that you're going to hear in these discussions. And so, I mean, in response to that, I would probably say about five things. The first thing is that a baby is within a mother's body. It is not her body. Remember, a baby is a distinct whole living human entity on its own. And so being inside of something is not the same as being something. With proper gestation and resources, that child, you know, provided something medically doesn't happen to it, that child will come out and be its own thing because it already is its own thing. It's its own subject. It just so happens to be intimately and intimately connected to the woman's body. The second thing is I, I would reject the premise completely. No one has the right to do with their body whatever they want, wherever they want, to, to whomever they want, however they want. That is not true freedom. I mean, just about our society. You can't use your body to kill another person. You can't decide to amputate one of your limbs. You can't even smoke in public places. I mean, we're coming off a, a pandemic. You, you couldn't go into a restaurant without wearing a mask. The, the idea that, you know, your body, your choice, no one has a right to infringe upon your self-determination, that's false in like a thousand other areas. I mean, your self-determination is infringed upon daily in hundreds of ways, you know, rightly or wrongly, and you don't have an issue with it. I mean, every time you get in a car and you drive away and you put on your seatbelt by threat of law, I mean, that's someone infringing upon your fundamental right to self-determination. And so I reject the premise at, all, at, at its basis that you have the right to do with your body whatever you want. I don't think that that's true at all. Um, and again, 
this argument assumes, this is the third thing, that the baby is not a person, which is unjust. I mean, nearly all violations of human rights have been defended on the grounds that someone has the right to say these are the haves and the have-nots. Um, and pro-choice people oftentimes are not pro-choice about other issues with less at stake. And so I would just call them to moral clarity. If you want to tell people what to do in terms of what they can smoke, you know, what they have to wear on their face, whether or not they have to, you know, be clothed when they're in public, whether or not they have the right to amputate their body or sell an organ on the black market. I mean, if you're willing to tell people, you know, what to do in that area, then you need to be open to being told, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't take the life of an innocent unborn person in the womb. And the last thing is, what about the father's desires and wants? I mean, it takes two to tango. It took two people to create that life. Shouldn't a father have just as much say over the mother and what, or over the, the child, um, you know, as, as the mother does? And I, I hear people often say, well, if you grant legal personhood rights to what's in the womb, you know, would you say that men ought to be charged child support? I mean, from the moment the baby's gestating to the moment they're out. I mean, why should it begin the moment they're out? And I say, absolutely. Uh, I accept I accept the terms of your agreement. I think men ought to step up and they ought to be uh, involved in the pregnancy process, the gestation process of that child. Uh, they ought to be involved in the child's life from womb to tomb. And I, I, and I can appreciate the fact that, that women so often have to carry the heaviest burdens because there's a lot of deadbeat dads out there. And so I think men need to be called to account because, again, they have just as much of a role in that life as the mother did. And so those are the types of things I would say to someone who, you know, uses the sovereign zone autonomy argument or the my body, my choice argument. I mean, again, I, I, I think on the face of it, it sounds so, so, I mean, self-evident. But then when you really start thinking, you realize, OK, this is not actually a strong argument for this position, or at least it's not strong enough to support elective abortion. Um, I mean, goodness, it, it really depends on what what's in the womb. If what's in the womb is a human being, then just about no argument for killing it uh, is is going to be sufficient. If it's not a human being, then no argument for why you're you know aborting it is even needed. But again, it goes back to what the nature of the being in the womb is. Yeah, and that actually reminded me of another point I've heard before. The about the fathers, the a man should not have any say in what the woman does because the man does not experience uh, yeah. childbearing or carrying a child to term. Yeah, um, and I I've heard this uh, as well, and the response I would say is moral issues are not engendered issues. Um, moral issues are human issues. And, you know, <laughs> the, a, a man has just as much of a right to have an opinion on the unjust killing of an innocent human being, just like a man has a right to talk about the unjust enslaving of a human being or the unjust um, bombing of a group of innocent people in a different country. Moral issues are not engendered issues. Um, moreover, I mean, I'd like to point out if, if the standard is you cannot have an opinion on abortion and you don't have a right to determine whether abortion should be legal or illegal if you're not a woman, 
then Roe v. Wade should have never been passed. I mean, it was passed by nine men. And so I think that the argument actually works against the pro-choice position uh, because it was decided by nine unelected jurists sitting on the high court. Um, but again, it's you're allowed to have moral opinions on ethical concerns. You're a part of this world. And so, I mean, a part of being in this world is, I mean, being accountable to people, standing up for what's right, doing the right thing, seeking the good of other human beings, leading to their success, leading to their flourishing. I mean, goodness, no man is an island, as John Doan famously said. And so I, that's what I would say to someone who says, well, if you're not a woman, you can't have an opinion on it. Yeah. All right. Uh, last points, I guess. Any, yeah. any that I missed? Did I miss anything? Um, I don't think so. I mean, again, we, we've covered, I think, the three strongest arguments for the pro-choice position and, and a couple of those other cliches and slogans you hear. I mean, there's a bunch of uh, arguments people use, um, but I really don't think at this point we're, at a, we're, we're, we're debating abortion anymore. I think people are so entrenched in their positions that they're just assuming that their position is the right position. I mean, I tell my, my kids all the, con- all the time, my students, everybody thinks, but not everybody thinks well. And so in terms of this discussion and debate, I think one of the first, thing that's, first things that need to happen is we need to begin thinking about this issue more. We need to be reading, I mean, scholarly articles and reading the philosophy and reading the, what the ethicists have said about here, have said about this topic and really engaging with it. So we need to think well, and I think we need to have compassion the whole time. Um, I am one of those wound-to-tomb guys. I think the pro-life position is much broader than the issue of abortion. I care just as much about that child before they're, you know, born and when they've, you know, moved through that seven to eight-inch birth canal. They're just as much of a human before and after, and I think the pro-life the pro-life movement has done a good job of that, even though they're often lambasted as not. Um, I think pro-life people can so often be some of the most compassionate and giving people out there. Um, those are the types of things I would say. I mean, goodness, think well and then have compassion on this issue. Meet people where they are. Try to, you know, uh, serve women, especially women in dire straits, and meet those needs so that that abortion is not even a, a, a possibility. It, it's not even needed. Um Though I would argue it's never needed. All right. Well, uh, I guess that ends the discussion on this so far. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to send in some questions, and if Austin's willing later, maybe we can answer some. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate yeah. you coming on and like giving your position and um, you know, kind of uh, equipping some people to figure out how to how to navigate this conversation, whether they're on the uh, pro life yeah. side of this yeah. or not. So this is wonderful. End of discussion.